0: All right, hello everyone, and welcome again to another episode of the Righteous Remnant podcast. I'm here again with my good friend Dennis Cole, and we both have an important conversation that I believe every Christian here in the states must listen to because it's a uh, it's a quite a controversial one. And uh, I would say maybe about twenty years ago, ten years ago, most evangelicals would be united in this issue, but now there's a huge rift. And, um, um, yeah, there's a lot of disagreements on this. So, Dennis, today I, I want to go ahead and just ask you some questions again and just, uh, you know, pick your brain on this. Mm-hmm. And really the question is, can a Christian vote for the Democratic Party in good conscience? And I just want to be clear, this is not, um, we're not saying that you must vote for the Republican Party in this segment. We're not saying that. And we're not saying that if you're a Christian who votes for the Democratic Party, uh, that you're not a Christian, but we're really just asking, can a Christian vote for a Democratic candidate today with their platform? So what say you, my dear brother?
1: Yeah, my, my answer would be a pretty clear no, okay? Mm. And I'm glad you, you clarified that there are, I think, lots of Christians who I expect to see, you know, in the age to come who, w- who vote Democrat. So I'm not saying it's impossible to be a Christian who votes Democrat, but I definitely think it is um, very unwise for a Christian to vote Democrat, and potentially um, can be even considered sinful. Um, And that's largely because of the issue of abortion, okay? There's, you know, you cannot escape abortion's importance. Now, abortion isn't the only thing. There are lots of other things um, as well that we can get into, but we can't skirt around the abortion issue right the way i see it today is abortion today is the same as slavery in the 19th century okay the sins are very similar at its core it is a sin of dehumanization right in the same way that our nation dehumanized um africans um back in the 19th century and we made them slaves well, the exact same thing is going on today where we are dehumanizing um, babies that are unborn and um, we're doing something worse to them than making them slaves. We are actually killing them in mass. Um, yeah. You know, I, th- I think it's something like one out of every five babies, maybe higher in America today is aborted. Right. We're talking, you know, maybe a million babies a year or something like that still. And this is a, this is um, this is a genocide. This is a genocide. There's no other way. If, if these babies are people, then this is a genocide, right? If they're not people, then this is much ado about nothing. But if we believe the Bible, we have to believe they're people, right? God said to Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you, right? I called you as a prophet, right? While you were still in your mother's womb, John the Baptist um, leapt in his mother's womb, right, at the mention of Jesus, and so we, we see evidences of personhood, right, Psalm, I think, 139, you formed me, right, in, in the hidden place, right, you knew me, like this, this whole idea of God knowing us before we were born, we have personhood prior to birth, and that's pretty obvious in the scriptures, that's pretty obvious, and so I don't see how a Christian can skirt around this issue, and then mm-hmm. it just becomes, you know, then you have to deal with the argument that voting Democrat is is not supporting abortion. And yes. mm-hmm. I think that's that's like putting your head in the sand, right? Mm-hmm. No, it obviously is supporting abortion. It obviously is supporting abortion. The platform of the Democratic Party is very pro-abortion, okay? They do not... At this point, I don't think any of the major candidates for president supported any type of restriction on abortion at all. We're talking, you know, third trimester abortions. They're trying to protect third trimester abortions. Not only that, but they want to fund it. They want the government to fund abortions here. They want our tax dollars to be used to pay for abortions here and abroad. They're using our tax dollars to pay for abortions all around the world. And this is happening. This is not like they want it to happen. This is happening right now, precisely because people are voting for Democratic candidates that are not trying to be subtle. They're not trying to be sly. They're openly saying that they're going to do this. And you know, you, you any Christian that votes for the Democratic Party today is, in my view, the same as one that would vote for. Um, you know, slavery in the 19th century, right? If we're talking like the election of Abraham Lincoln, look, the election of Abraham Lincoln was a referendum on slavery. And, you know, you can justify it all you want, but at the end of the day, if if you're not voting for Abraham Lincoln, it doesn't matter that you support, you know, you just disagree with him on tax policy, you disagree with him on other minor policies. Those policies... Are nowhere near as relevant or important as the issue of slavery in the 19th century, and it's the same thing today with abortion, in my opinion. And I don't see how you can make a logical or philosophical argument against that today. Um, you know that abortion isn't that important to um, the you know the current political environment. Yeah.
0: And well, just to be fair to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are more liberal-leaning, uh, they abhor abortion. I've talked with a number of them. They hate abortion. They're extremely pro-life. Uh, they hate um, some of the um, anti-Christian uh, policies that the Democrats are trying to pass, like the Equality Act and all these things. Um, um, so they hate those things, and they want to be clear about that. But they just feel that the Democratic Party are doing a better job when it comes to um, helping the poor. When it comes to health care, which in turn then lowers abortion, uh, um, they're, they're kinder to the foreigner that's coming here, the immigrants that are coming here to the states. And so those are the things that are in favor for. So what do you say to that? How would you respond to that?
1: Yeah, so this, this is either very dishonest or a very ignorant argument. Okay? Mm. And again, I'm not trying to accuse people of purposefully being dishonest or ignorant. But I'm just saying they are they are swallowing propaganda and they are reciting it without really understanding what they're saying. And here's mm-hmm. what I mean by that. When you when you say something like conservatives are not pro life, right? Which is an argument I hear all the time. They're only anti-abortion but they don't care about babies after they're born Mm -hmm. and why is why do why do they say that what is the evidence for that well it's because we don't support um government socialist government programs things like welfare you know things like free health care for all because we don't support these programs we do not care about the people after they're born And that, that to me, is such an incredibly dishonest argument. It is pure propaganda. It is pure lies. And it bothers me enough when politicians say this stuff, but I understand politicians are liars, okay? They are all about spinning the truth. But it bothers me when Christians make that argument because it's so incredibly dishonest. And any Christian should be able to easily tell that that's a dishonest argument. Because Jesus said, where your money is, There your heart is also, right? Mm -hmm. And Christians, evangelical Christians, who are often conservative, are at the forefront of, you know, helping the poor all over the world, okay? We are putting our money where our mouth is in terms of caring for the poor, caring for the homeless, caring for orphans, adopting. Go down the list, and you will see that it's many mostly conservative Christians that are doing this with their own time and their money. So to turn around and accuse them of not caring for the poor because they won't support socialist policies is the height of dishonesty to me, all right? And it it the reason why people like me do not support socialist policies is because we feel like not only are they ineffective, we feel like they are counterproductive. They actually mm-hmm. hurt the people that they are quote unquote trying to help, okay? And that's why I don't support policies such as welfare, such as health care for all. Free health care, you know, public health care. Free health care, that's a lie. It's not free. Someone is paying for it. What we're doing when we, you know, push for programs like free, quote unquote, free health care for all, is we are saying the rich need to pay for it with greater taxation. And ultimately, you know, this we're going to make this whole episode about, health care policy if i go into the details of this but ultimately let me just simply say i think it's such a terrible idea if we were to do this it would not help the poor it would hurt the poor um it would hurt all americans that's why i don't support that policy but to say that because i don't support that policy i don't care about the poor again that's pure dishonesty that's yeah, propaganda yeah. and if if we
0: look at the stats the data here um you know, when Trump was in office, unemployment was the lowest ever for sure. all minorities.
1: Sure. Yeah. All
0: across the board. If I'm, a, I, mean, I mean, that's what I, I, I saw. I may be wrong, but isn't that the case? That it was the lowest for all minorities, lowest unemployment um, in American history, right? Or in the past 50 years. Sure. Um, lowest abortions. Sure. Um, in 2017 and i think 2018 as well so i, I don't know where they're uh, pulling from with this argument that uh, one of the arguments are that uh, during a democratic president abortions are lower right I mean, what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah i mean i've, I've heard that argument there's this yeah. you know viral video that's been going around the internet mm-hmm. about how abortions decrease faster under democratic presidents than under republican presidents ergo Mm-hmm. It's actually better to vote for Democrats if we want to stop abortion. And again, it's this is the same it's the same thing. It's either very dishonest or it's extremely ignorant in my opinion. And I want to give the benefit of the doubt to people because I understand, you know, if you don't understand a lot of the the dynamics going on here, you can hear that and be like, "Oh, well that makes sense." But it doesn't make sense, okay? The idea that whoever happens to be president somehow that is going to directly affect how many abortions are committed under you know while that person is in office that's there there's no reason to think that first of all okay um look the reason why abortions tend to go down more under you know democratic presidents is is multifaceted there are a number of reasons for this but like you already pointed out That pattern did not continue under Trump in any case, right? But if we're going back to Obama and some of these past presidents, well, what you tend to have in politics is when you elect uh, a liberal president, a Democratic president, well, what tends to happen is in the midterm elections, um, conservatives tend to get more elected, okay? That's just the Mm way democracy tends to work, okay? If one seat gets the presidency, then what happens is there's a counter movement to push back... And usually the other um, party will take Congress or take state legislatures and things like that, and really that's where you're seeing a lot of the fight against abortion happening. It's happening at the state level, where various state legislatures who are conservative, okay, are passing restrictions on abortion in many of these states. Okay, all right. At, it, it, to me, if you're if you're going to make just the pure argument, okay, look, we've seen that Democratic presidents equal lower abortions, I mean, you basically have to make the argument that even though these Democratic presidents are trying to fund abortion, are trying to champion abortion, meaning they, they refuse to condemn it, they're going to talk about how important a women's right to health care is, that's, you know, that's a pseudonym for abortion, things like this. They're going to be championing it and trying to promote it, and this is somehow causing abortions to decrease. Right, it, it, it. I would just encourage believers. Come on, come on, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's not generally how this stuff works. Okay, that's not how this stuff works. They're funding it. They're making it as easy as possible to have abortion. That's not going to make de- abortions decrease. And at the end of the day, we're not after just a decrease in abortion. Mm-hmm. Okay, like yeah. this idea that hey. We've got, we have a Democrat in, in power, and, you know, maybe, I hope that will make abortion decrease another 2% or something like that. That's not our goal here. That's not our goal. Imagine if we're, you know, back in the times of slavery and we're saying, you know, we don't like slavery, so we're just hoping that we're going to decrease it 2% this year, right? Like, that would not be a worthy goal. We're not trying to decrease it 2%. We're trying to abolish this thing. Yeah. We're trying to abolish abortion. Yes. And there is no path to abolition except through Roe versus Wade. Okay, Roe versus Wade is the Supreme Court case back in the early 70s that gave a constitutionally protected right to every American to be able to have an abortion. You cannot abolish abortion unless you overturn Roe versus Wade. Yeah. And the only party that is trying to do that are the republicans okay the democrats are clearly dead set against overturning roe versus wade so if you want to abolish abortion there is no alternative right now to the to the republican party okay and if there's a if there arises another party that's even more pro um you know uh, excuse me more pro life then sure i would be open to voting for them but that sure is not the democrats okay yeah. Like the Democrats are protecting Roe versus Wade with all of their effort. And so any support for the Democratic Party right now is enshrining this legislation that will ensure that abortion can never be abolished in our nation. Yeah, yeah.
0: And let's just say that uh, there are good Democratic policies that benefit the country. You know, I mean, that's debatable because we're conservatives. We're going to say that. But let's just say there are some that's good. But you have this one thing, though, that's so evil, yeah, that's so egregious that it has to be a disqualifier. And I don't want to use the word abortion here because I feel like it minimizes what it really is. It is uh, a legalization of baby genocide.
1: Absolutely.
0: So that's, that's exactly what the Democrats are trying to advance so that's what they are propagating and that's what they're celebrating even after birth there's a lot of democrats now that are trying to uh push for after birth abortion which is oh my gosh yes so i guess that's my question to more of our our liberal uh brothers and sisters is that is this not a disqualifier for you
1: it absolutely should be it it should should be i look i have made a personal Commitment, I will not vote for a pro choice candidate in any capacity. None. I'm not going to do it. I think Mm. every Christian should make that commitment that under no circumstance will I support a pro choice candidate. And again, there are other criteria, but we're going to say that's a deal breaker. Okay, you can be great in a hundred different ways. But if you support abortion, I cannot, I will not vote for you. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to be held responsible by God. And I think this issue is that important to God. And Paul, Mm. this is, you know, the other part of this that I think there's a lot of confusion in the church over what is, you know, what are the major issues to God and what are the minor issues to God, right? Mm. Abortion is a major issue. When we look at the history of ancient Israel, we see that there were two issues that really upset God, okay? There's lots of sin being committed in Israel, but you're going to see again and again there's two issues that God is going to bring up, right? One is idolatry, right, with ancient Israel, and the second is sacrificing children to Molech, right? This is the thing that really upset him, and and it's understandable why, it's totally understandable why, because these are the most innocent members of our society. They're the ones that we are to be protecting. When scripture talks about defending the innocent, right? There's no one more applicable than our babies. Yeah. There's nobody more applicable. They cannot speak for themselves, so they need others to speak for them. If we're yeah. fighting for the oppressed, there's nobody that meets that criteria more so than the unborn today. So I believe this is a major issue in the sight of God. I think that we are subjecting ourselves to serious judgment if we do not have national repentance on this issue. And Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, he was pretty clear that the civil war that we fought in the 19th century was a judgment for the sin of slavery. And on that, I think he was 100% correct. Okay, Um, My question is, what is the appropriate judgment for the sin of abortion? I think it's going to be much worse if we don't repent. And what we had with the Civil War was we had at least a partial repentance. right? The Second Great Awakening really lit a fire on the abolition movement. And because of that, roughly half the nation repented of abortion. But because there wasn't full repentance, we had a judgment that was still very terrible. Right? 2% Yeah. 2% of the nation, one out of every 50 people was killed in America through our civil war. Imagine what the toll would have been if there was less repentance than that, right? Well, that's what we have in a, uh, with abortion right now. And I think the sin is greater. I think the sin of abortion is a greater sin than the sin of slavery. So I, I'm very concerned about this. But what's going on is there's mass confusion in the church right now. And that's because of a counterfeit justice movement, Mm -hmm. okay? The counterfeit justice movement, all right, is this idea that minorities are oppressed in America today, okay? If we're talking like black people, brown people, gay people, women, that these people are greatly oppressed in America, and this narrative is so strong right now that many Christians have bought into this narrative, and because of that, they're confused, and so they feel like hey i like what the democrats are doing in fighting against this oppression against minorities i like what the republicans are doing fighting against this oppression of babies but because i like both of them i'm caught in the middle and i'm confused i know many christians that are in this place right now and i just need to say this as strongly and as forcefully as i can this is a counterfeit justice movement okay it is marxist at its core Okay there is a reason why hundreds of millions of people fell into the lie of communism in the past generation it's not because they're idiots it's not because they were fools it's because this ideology is very powerful okay where you start to believe that you have been oppressed by these people and you point to every inequality every inequality becomes evidence of oppression. That's exactly how the narrative of systemic racism works. This idea that every type of inequality is more evidence that oppression exists. Meanwhile, we're talking about some of the most privileged people on the planet. If you are a woman in America, you are one of the most privileged people on the planet, but that's almost all of these minority groups. Okay, yeah. if you are gay in America, you are one of the most privileged people on the planet. If you're brown, okay. If you're black, guess what? Black Americans are the wealthiest black people on the planet. All right. This it, to argue that I'm being seriously oppressed. It is such a deception, and that deception has become so influential in the church because of liberation theology. That it has caused mass confusion where the church now cannot mobilize effectively against abortion to fight abortion. And look, I have to say, I think it's going to bring judgment on our nation if we don't get clarity on this issue.
0: Dennis, you mentioned liberation theology. Can you unpack that for our audience a little bit? What What is liberation uh, theology and how does that tie in with um, Marxism? And then we're going to pivot back again uh, to uh, abortion and the Democratic Party. But just, just for yes. a little bit, can you unpack that for us?
1: Yeah, liberation theology is a theology that was developed in Latin America, I believe in the 1960s, 1970s. All right. And look. It's basically the idea that hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna read the Bible through a certain lens, and the lens is this that God is on the side of the oppressed. All right, and you can kind of read the Bible that way, right? So the way that liberation theologians will read the Bible is like, hey, God saw this people that was oppressed, namely Israel. They were slaves in Egypt, and He was on their side, and so He delivered them. Right? He um, uh, He saved them. But then what happened? They became rich and they became oppressors. And then what happened? God turned away from them because they became the oppressors, right? And they read through this type of a lens. And the problem with it is it becomes very um, intermeshed with Marxism. So almost Mm -hmm. always what you're going to see in liberation theology is that the answer is government, right? Government. We need government to implement these policies. We need to give the government the power in order to— enact equality in our society, right? So it's generally, what's gonna argue is that we have to increase taxes, we have to take more money from rich people to even the playing field of equality, right? And there's gonna be a lot of fighting for this type of thing. And so there's always been this idea that liberation theology is a type of socialism, it's a type of Marxism, which it is, okay, mm-hmm. which it is. And, you know, the classic liberation theology was not that effective in America, but just like, you know, classic Marxism wasn't that effective effective in America until it got reworked through the lens of race, all right? So we understand how, you know, classic socialism was, hey, the 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 workers need to rise up against the capitalist owners. And, you know, in America, that wasn't that great. But when critical race theory was developed and they took that classic Marxist formula and reinterpreted through race. Now mm-hmm. that became an extremely powerful um, story in America. Okay, now the story is white people have oppressed black people, okay? And black people need to band together and fight for power, right? Well, that becomes much more Compelling in the American context. Well, that's the same thing that happened in liberation theology. So, liberation theology got into the black church in particular very strong in the form of black liberation theology. All right, so when people talk about black theology, what they're really talking about is black liberation theology. All right, and black liberation theology is this type of you know, this theology that God's on the side of you know, black. People who have been oppressed in America, and this is you know, that theology that hates white patriotism and white nationalism and sees that everywhere, right? And it sees white supremacy as the great oppressor. And I just I just want to say this this is not biblical theology. Okay, this is not true biblical theology. This is a, a different gospel. All right, this is a different gospel because the way the Bible understands oppression is that all people are oppressed by spiritual powers. This is the biblical worldview, right? When Before we were in Christ, we were under the influence, the power of the ruler of the spirit of the air, the devil, right? We're under his power and we are enslaved to him and oppressed by him. And how do you get out of oppression In that system, well, you put your faith in Jesus. You give him your allegiance. Now you're translated out of these hostile kingdoms into the kingdom of the Son. Now you have an inheritance with Christ in eternity. Meaning this, if you are a black Christian, my question to you is, are you oppressed? And if your answer is, yes, I am oppressed, then I tell you, you're living under a different gospel. Okay, you're living under a black liberation gospel where you need, a pre- you need salvation from white supremacy and things like this. Okay? That is not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is that even if I'm a slave in this life, if I'm in Christ, then I am Christ's free man. I am a co-heir with Christ. And the expectation under the biblical gospel is that all of us are going to face persecution All of us are going to face injustice. All of us are going to face hardships and tribulations in this life. But if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old has gone and the new has come. And my identity is no longer in these old things. That's why Paul says all of these privileges, all of these things that I used to consider valuable, I now consider them garbage compared right? To knowing Christ. And that's the whole idea here. When Christians are like, hey, our focus is we need to set people free from poverty. Hey, our focus is we need to fight white privilege. I'm like, I thought white privilege is one of those privileges that is garbage if you're in Christ. Mm-hmm. You're operating under a different worldview. When you're obsessed with things like white privilege, That is not a biblical worldview because you have Christ privilege. Christ's privilege is so much better than any type of worldly privilege. And when we hype up these types of worldly privileges as though they're valuable, as though they matter, then we are operating under a different worldview and we're preaching a different gospel.
0: Right. Yeah. And what I'm hearing you saying, Dennis, is that you're not saying that oppression doesn't happen, uh, that there's no injustice in the world today. There, there are injustices. There are oppressions. But what critical race theory does and kind of this cultural Marxism does is that it labels um, a people group as either oppressed or oppressor. Right. And that's bearing false witness against a brother because of the color of their skin, if they're white, they immediately belong to the oppressor uh, group because they are white and they're part of this hegemonic power that's controlling, you know, the majority and things like that. Right. And, well, uh, yeah. look,
1: the truth is all of us are yeah. both oppressed and oppressors at times. Mm. Okay, that's the whole idea of, of being sinful. Okay? We all sometimes oppress others. And that's, yeah. that's the idea that... I have to repent of my sin because I recognize that I have sinned in life and who have I sinned against other people often, right? Yeah. So this idea that I'm only going to be concerned about a certain type of oppression and it's going to be the type of oppression that's, that's committed against me and I'm going to train all of my senses to be focused on this type of oppression and that's what we have in America today. Look, in my experience, the average black person— is far more racist than the average white person in America. Okay? Now, let's be clear. There are lots of of racist white people in America. I'm not denying that. Okay? There's you know You know what? There's more racist Koreans. Okay? I say this as a Korean. There's far more racist Koreans than racist white people in America. Can I just say that? Per capita, we're talking here. Okay? And in my experience, per capita, black people, on average, are far more racist than white people. But... The whole idea of critical race theory is that their racism doesn't matter, Yeah. right? Racism yeah. is power plus, you know, privilege. I think that's the way they put it. Power plus um, prejudice. That's it, sorry. Prejudice well, well, plus well, well, power. Go ahead.
0: Exactly. What it, what it does is that it immediately assumes that a person is oppressed or an oppressor because of the color of their skin or their gender and things like that. Right. Which is so anti-biblical. Well, that is... It, what it's trying to do is it's yeah. just
1: trying to it's, – it's putting people in tribes and camps yes. and saying, hey, this is the great evil, the oppression of this tribe against this tribe. But the yes. truth is, guess what? This other tribe oppresses also. Yeah. Okay? But and that's, the, according
0: to critical race theory, the, it's impossible yes, for the you, – Yes, well, you're uh, minimizing
1: yeah. it constantly. Yeah. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm pointing out here. Look. Yeah. You know who commits the most abortions in America per capita? Black people. Okay. By this measure, black people are the greatest oppressors in America, and I think that's probably true, okay? I think by God's standards, I think black people are probably the greatest oppressors in America right now, okay? But here's the truth, all of us are oppressors in various ways. This is why all of us cannot become hypersensitive to the ways that we are oppressed, because that is a trap of the devil, that's what the enemy is trying to do. Get us, to, get us to focus on all the ways that I am wronged, how wrongs are committed against me to make me blind to all the sin that I commit. And then what happens? I become embittered, and I become angry, and I become violent. And that's the pattern that Marxism always breeds. It always breeds class warfare. It always breeds anger, resentment, tribal conflict. And that pattern is no different. Why do we have you know more rioting more looting all this type of thing because people are more convinced that they are oppressed right now we're talking about some of the most privileged people on the planet do you understand there how many people in the world would gladly trade places with all of these so-called oppressed people in america it's it is such an incredible deception right but that's what we have in America today. We have all of these people who are convinced because they have fallen under this worldview, which is not a biblical worldview. In the biblical worldview, my first concern is my own sin. That's my first concern. I'm reaping what I've sown. All right. And if that's true, then my focus is to be, repent. I can't control what other people are gonna do to me. I can't control, that. I can't stop them from persecuting me at times. But my hope is in the Lord that He will He will pay back all these things in His time, right? Paul, I don't know about you. I don't expect to be wealthy in this life as a Christian. Okay, I don't expect to be privileged in this life. I don't expect people to treat me fairly in this life. Would I like them to? Well, of course I would like them to. All right, but the whole point here is that my citizenship is not primarily in America. My citizenship is in the heaven. And because of that, I can face hardships. I can face trials and tribulations. I can face people wronging me and, you know, slandering me and all these kinds of things. And I can forgive them. Why? Because I know that there is one who will judge all men, right? And that any, any, any way that I have been wronged by people and I obey the Lord, I forgive those who have wronged me, right? then I know that he will reward me, right? And all of my hope is fixed on him as the judge. And therefore I don't get embittered. I don't believe that my primary battle or warfare is against people. Right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers in spiritual places. That's who our battle is against, right? And the Bible is gonna continually point to them as being the originators of this of oppression. That people are pawns in these, you know, in, in the war in the heavenly realms. And that's why when we become so humanistic that all we see is the oppression of people, scripture says that we are deceived. Because we're not seeing the real oppressors who are these spiritual powers, and those are the ones that Jesus offers salvation from, that we can belong to his kingdom by putting our faith in him. Yeah, yeah. So how would a
0: Christian then pursue justice? How can a Christian um, even engage in politics at this point and advance, you know— just policies yes so what would what would you for, for for example you have our our christian liberals who want to help the poor they want to uh help uh, the immigrants that are coming in this country uh regardless of the arguments on on which is better the republican or the uh, liberal policies their heart is in the right place they yes. want to help the poor they want to go ahead and make it better for the country yes H- what would you tell them H- how should they advance um you know, justice, without falling into this kind of Marxist framework then.
1: Yeah. Well, look, Marxism is a humanistic worldview. And I need to to unpack worldview a little bit to understand all this, okay? Sure. Worldview is, you can think of it as a religion, all right? And all worldviews, all religions have a version of heaven, a version of utopia that they're going after, right? So in Mm -hmm. Islam, their understanding of utopia is... The whole world is going to be conquered, right, by Muslims. And then Sharia law will be the law of the whole world, and then we'll have peace. We'll have world peace under Sharia law, okay? That's their version of heaven, right? The Christian version of heaven is actually not that Christians go to heaven, although that's kind of the, kind of the most popular understanding, but it's really that Jesus comes to earth, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus comes to earth, and he becomes the perfect king who rules forever, mm-hmm. all right? That is the Christian utopia. Well, there's a humanistic utopia, too. The humanistic utopia is really where government, human government, takes the place of God in this system. So what we're going to do is we're going to have the perfect human government, right, where all nations are going to be united under one government, and we're all going to be enlightened, educated, so there's not going to be any more war. We're not going to need to fight with each other, and we're, and we're going to take care of the poor through government programs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so... This is a worldview where the government replaces God in many of these things. What I'm getting at here is this. Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. Well, one of the things that socialism is 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 preaching is, hey, we don't need to have the poor with us anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, hey, if we erect the perfect government or the perfect government policies, then we can actually eradicate poverty. Right? We can get rid of it totally. Right? And that's What's constantly, you know, implied or blatantly, openly preached. And young people in particular fall into this. Young people and academics, okay? Academics have always been, you know, a place of of naivete. Because, you know, I I say this because I'm kind of like an academic, right? I'm very intellectual and I like, you know, I like dreaming up plans and I envision how great these plans were could be, right? Mm-hmm. And man, if only we could do this, then it would result in this amazing thing. But the reason why I say that is because, you know, it's, it's always the academies, it's always the universities that have pushed Marxism. For the past hundred years, it's primarily been pushed by universities because Marxism is a very idealistic version of utopia. Hey, yeah, what we're going to do is we're just going to get all these oppressed peoples to band together, then they're going to take power, and then we're going to have utopia. We're going to share power. And it's going to be utopia. Now it's very—it's always fuzzy on the details of how exactly you're going to do that. You know, Marxism is always better at tearing down than it is at building up. But the point here is this: when we're talking about helping the poor, that's a glorious thing. All Christians should be devoted to helping the poor. All right, the Bible does say the gospel is good—is good news to the poor. But we should understand why it says that. All right, the reason why the Bible says the gospel is good news to the poor is because it. It heavily implies that rich people, okay, can become deceived by their riches, right? Jesus talks about this, right? The, the, the seed that's planted in thorny soil bears little fruit. Why? Because of the anxieties of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. The problem with riches is that you actually think they're valuable, all right? From the mm-hmm. biblical perspective, riches are not that valuable, okay? But the problem is they look very valuable. And so people get tempted into thinking their riches are actually really valuable, and then they're not willing to trust God with them, they're not willing to be generous with them, all sorts of things like this, all right? And that becomes a great stumbling block for people. So the idea here is that riches tend to beget arrogance and pride, all right? And poverty tends to lend itself towards having an open heart or a humble spirit. All right? That's why the gospel is good news to the poor, because the poor are more open to receiving the gospel. And that's generally true. Okay. Right. Now, here's the great irony of things. America is so fabulously wealthy that even our poor people are ultra-rich by global standards. Okay, mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why the gospel is so rejected in America today. It's because we're so rich. Like, where are the mission fields where the gospel, people are open to the gospel? They tend to be in poorer nations, all right? Mm. Generally speaking. The reason I'm saying this is because it's our responsibility to help the poor, but we are naive if we think that we can eradicate poverty through whatever human plans we come up with. Okay? If we Mm -hmm. think... That, hey, if we just do this, and I've I've studied lots of things to to try and eradicate poverty, things like microloans, right? And things like various government policies to help poverty and things like that. If we think that these programs are the means by which we can completely eradicate poverty, that is a type of idealism and naivete, okay? No, you cannot eradicate poverty like that, all right? You cannot. We are unable to do that. And the reason why it's important to understand that is because when we are helping the poor, we're not helping them with an expectation that we're going to be able to fix poverty everywhere. That's what lends itself to, to Marxism, right? To these utopian mm-hmm. humanistic ideologies. No, no when Christians okay. help the poor, we're helping them understanding that this is a temporary relief. Okay, We're helping them in hopes that they would receive the real treasure that we have. Okay, The real treasure that we have is not our money it's not our food. It's not our medicine. It's not our expertise, okay? These are lesser treasures that we have. These are minor treasures that we have as Christians. Okay, But if we just give them some money or some food, and that's all we give them, then we are not helping them receive the greater treasure that we have, which is the gospel, okay? People's hearts are opened up by humanitarian aid, by compassion, but the hope for the Christian is that our compassion would show them that we love them, that we don't value these things as much as we value them, and hope that they would receive the real treasure that we're trying to give them, which is Christ.
0: Got it. Got it. Well, to push back a little bit. The Christian yes. liberal would say, we understand that, Dennis, and we agree with you. We understand that the riches in this world will fade, However, we're still commanded by God to help the poor. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that we see that we can help the poor is through governmental policies. We're not advocating for a utopia, um, you know, because only utopia can be achieved when Christ comes to earth. Mm-hmm. But we are obeying Christ in helping the poor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, the yeah. Democrats are just doing a better job at it. So, what do you say to that?
1: Yeah, I would say you're despising the wisdom of our forefathers who try, who their number one thing was to pass down this point of wisdom and you're despising it by embracing that philosophy, okay? And what I mean by that is this. The, the founding principle of our nation is liberty, okay? Liberty. And the question when you're talking about liberty is liberty from what? All right? And the answer is liberty from the government, <laughs> all right? That mm. is the founding core philosophy of our nation's creation, all right? We fought a revolutionary war to pass down the value of liberty to generations that came thereafter, right? Because the belief of the founding fathers was that governments use propaganda to say, hey, we need more power to help people, and then they use the power to oppress people. That was their core belief, all right? I believe it was Locke or Hobbes. Hobbes, I can't remember exactly, but he said, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. All right. Mm-hmm. That was well believed by the founding fathers. And so the whole idea here was that tyrants throughout history always argue that they want power to help people. All right. Everyone makes that argument. The problem is people are so flawed that they inevitably use the power and they become more oppressive than helpful. Yeah. So the whole idea was that we want a weak government. All right? We want a weak government and they put in all of these safeguards, right? We're going to break up the government to three parts, right? Legislative, executive, judicial. And they're going to fight amongst each other. And then we're going to have them fight amongst the state governments and then the local governments, and then we're going to have them rotate so no one's in power for too long. They have to be elected every four years, right? And then above them all, we're going to put a constitution. And I always tell this to my kids. The constitution is the the king of America, all right? The king of America is a piece of paper, and the piece of paper is to protect us from people who claim that we need to give them more power and money in order to help more people. Alright, so what I'm getting at Paul is this, when we say that the only way to help people is to give the government more power and money, we are despising the wisdom from our founding. We're despising the inheritance of our founding fathers by buying into that socialist propaganda. It is propaganda. Why do you need to go through the government is my question. Why, why would the government be the best Tool to help the poor, all right? The answer is it almost never is socialism. Almost always is nice for the first generation of people that get to enjoy that socialism, and then wait, hold on, Dennis. Uh, democratic policies do work
0: though um, in a lot of cities. Hold on, let me let me list sure. some for you. Yep. I'm so sorry. I can't think of any. Actually, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, look, I digress.
0: I digress. Keep going, brother. Yeah.
1: Look, this is a, it's a philosophical debate. I understand that. But what I want to impress upon Christians is this. Our founding fathers wanted to pass down this wisdom so badly. This is why they fought the Revolutionary War. Right, was to end feudalism, was to put an end to feudalism, which is the idea that we needed to have nobles, we need to have people who are better with more education and more money, and we needed to, and who we should, they should tax us because they know better than we do. And they're saying, no, all that feudalistic system, all right, is really oppressive at its core, and we don't need that anymore. And what we're essentially going back to is we're going back to that type of system with socialism. Where we're saying, hey, we're going to put our trust in this human government to take care of us. And mm. all of this is the the founders would scream, no, do not fall into that, right? No, we believe that we can help the poor best through private means and through preaching responsibility, all right? This is exactly, this is church wisdom too. Paul says, if someone is not working, they should not eat. Right? That's what the Bible says. And why is that? Because you need to suffer from your own sinfulness in order to learn important lessons. Right? But what we do when we entrust ourselves to a socialist system, it seems like it's helpful, but it's not helpful. It actually destroys. And just to give like, you know, the reality is we could spend like multiple episodes just on every individual piece of policy, right, to break it down and talk about how this works out in practice. But I just want to give a simple analogy because I think it helps, right? I tell people like when you're 18, right, you should, you should not live at home. You should not live at home anymore, right? You should not have your parents be taking care of all of your bills, right, paying for everything, And I know a lot of people who, that's exactly what happens to them. They're living at home, their parents are paying for everything, and here's the problem with that. You never need to provide for yourself. And because you don't have that need, you can't summon the motivation to actually work hard, to become resourceful, to do all that. Like you have to become independent. And a lot of, Asia, this is really common in Asian culture, right? In Asian culture, like a lot of parents think they're helping their kids by, you know, paying for everything for them for a long time. And I actually say, actually, what you're usually doing is you're debilitating them, right? Mm. It's much better, actually, if you cut them off. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that you can't ever help them at all, all right? What I'm saying is you don't want to create codependence. Codependence right. will cripple the, the maturation process for a young adult, Right? Mm-hmm. It's actually way better that they go out on their own and they suffer a little bit, right? And they, they have to figure things out. Why? Because what they'll start to do is they'll start to access all of their resourcefulness. They'll start to get real motivation right, to work hard in all of these things. And those things are yeah. valuable. So I'm just giving a very simple analogy and metaphor because it works the same way with government. right? When we keep making arguments that we need the government... To provide and to care and to do these things, what we actually end up doing is we end up crippling huge portions of our society. When we look at the war on poverty in the 1970s, right, it had a devastating effect on the black community in America. It incentivized, right, couples not to marry or to divorce because they got bigger paychecks if you were single than if you were married, Right, it is directly responsible for a lot of the brokenness in the black community, which starts to skyrocket after the 1960s, largely because of these types of policies. So I'm saying, when you blindly make the argument, no, 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 this is all help the poor, and if you don't support these policies, it's because you don't care about the poor. Again, if you're preaching that, it is, number one, so dishonest. But number two, I would argue you're actually hurting those people. You are hurting the people that you are claiming to help. And that's what I think most of these democratic policies do. They actually hurt people that they're designed, quote unquote, to help.
0: Yeah, but but a lot of our our, our friends on the left are, you know, if I talk to them about socialistic policies and how Marxism now has crept into the country, they just kind of like, okay, there you go again, you know, with your Marxism word and uh, your socialist uh you know, um, uh, you know, thing that you throw at us all the time. Sure, they, they're they're having a hard time believing that Marxism and socialism has really dominated um, democratic policies, uh, or has crept in uh, in uh, in a big way here in America. Uh, and what they do is they compare it to Venezuela, they compare it to China, they compare it to North Korea, to communism. We're not the yeah, well, yeah. we're not those countries. So how how could you say that we're becoming you know, um, socialistic, and we're not even close to becoming like those other countries that have been infected with socialism. So what do you say to that?
1: Well, look, the, the nature of socialism is that the answer is always more socialism. Let me, my question is, this: okay, when will we yeah. have enough socialism? Like, how about when half of our federal budget is, you know, public services to help the poor? Would that mm-hmm. be enough? Because <laughs> we're at two-thirds right now. Do you understand that? Right. Two-thirds right. of our federal budget is social services yeah. to help the poor. Hmm. So I always I like when exactly are we gonna have enough socialism to where now we're here? And the answer right. is never. Okay? The nature of socialism is that socialism is always what we need more of more, uh, yes. because, we, because we still have these inequalities. Hey Newsflash, you're always gonna have inequalities. The inequalities don't get any better under communism, they get worse. The more socialism you have throughout history, the more the inequalities widen. What do you think has happened in the past 50 years in America as we've increased more in so, so-called democratic socialism? Inequality has increased in the nation. That's not, that's not a coincidence, yeah. right? That's how it always works.
0: Yeah. So it seems to me that they're ignorant to how socialism works. It starts off like, oh, it's okay. We're helping everybody. And then it completely cripples the economy. So how do we wake people up uh, before it gets to crippling the whole nation? What do we say to them that, hey, we're on our way there? Yeah. Right? So I, I, I'm having a hard time. Um, I, I'm throwing, uh, you know, articles on cultural Marxism and all these things. But then you have these uh, heroes of the faith, these uh, Christians um, who people look up to, like Tim Keller, like David Platt, and all these other guys that are saying that, no, we're not quite there yet. These are actually, you know, biblical some of these things that you know we're advocating for are biblical so how do you respond to that
1: yeah i mean there's no easy response here's here's my basic response look i think we're going to come into hard times in america okay i think we're past the point where we can escape serious discipline from the lord at this point Mm -hmm. i think we should have an expect expectation that we're going to come into very difficult times in america and here's the thing like americans don't understand we have been so blessed We've been so blessed. Like, our nation's history, God has protected us and provided for us so much. You understand in World War II, you know World War II, all of our enemies destroyed each other. They barely touched us in World War II, right? Like, 80% of World War II was Germans killing Russians and vice versa, all right? The Eastern Front, if you've ever studied that war, that's where most of the bloodshed was happening, right? Right? We got nuclear weapons from a German scientist that immigrated to America, so that we didn't have to invade Japan. Right, we don't understand how protected and blessed we've been by the Lord. We've never had a serious existential devastation, right, in our nation. But that's because we've had we've had a history of faith of putting our our faith in the Lord that this generation has despised like no generation in our nation's history. All right. So I think we need, to, we need to expect that things are going to get really hard and terrible. And, and that's, look, in a lot of ways, that's important. Judgment is God's, I always call it, it's like a national spanking. It's where God is spanking us. And why? Because now we have the opportunity to feel the pain from our sin that might actually lead us to humility and repentance. Okay? It doesn't always lead us to humility and repentance, but there's a chance that it will. It helps lead us to humility and repentance. And what I'm getting at is this. Look, this is this is the biblical pattern. If you read Romans 1, it talks about how people did not consider the knowledge of God valuable enough to be held on to. So God gave them over to their lustful passions. He gave them over to their sinful desires. Right? That is exactly what has happened in America. Right? Where as our nation is turned away from the Lord, God has given us over to these sinful desires, right? There's a reason why homosexuality is so, you know, pervasive now in our culture. And the Bible calls that one of the signs of mature cultural sin, all right? That's what we have going on here in America. I think it's almost certain that we're going to be strongly disciplined by the Lord. My hope is that we'll also have a strong revival, so what I'm getting at here is that, look, I understand guys like Keller and and Platt, you know, are, in my opinion, speaking very unwise things here. And I want to I wanna clarify, I consider both of them dear brothers in the Lord, there lots of people that are dear brothers in the Lord, but yes, I think they're deeply deceived on some of these issues, all right? Mm-hmm. And look, there's lots of people that are more deceived than Keller and Platt on these issues, okay? And I want to say that and- in humility, like I... I fully yeah. understand I could be the one who's deceived, you know, the Lord will 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 sort all this out on judgment day. Yeah. But from my perspective, I think they're 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 in error on this and it's a devastating error because right now we need unity in the church to preach repentance for sexual immorality and abortion and this rebelliousness against God, but the church is so confused that its leaders are all over the place, and that's one of the reasons why we don't have a strong movement to bring reformation to the nation. Now, I have great hope that we are gonna have a great revival in the nation and that we will get that kind of clarity and that kind of momentum where we can lead the nation into real repentance for some of these issues but i do think i think we're going to pay a hefty cost right just like the civil war the civil war was i believe a, a strong discipline from the lord but it was a discipline it did not end in our destruction our latter glory was greater than our former glory before the civil war so even though it was a harsh discipline it was it was received and we we it did see a repentance of of slavery in the nation and I'm yeah. hoping that we will also have repentance from abortion. But yeah, it might be very painful. Okay, so all I can say, Paul, to this is, look, we're going to do our best to try and convince as many believers as we can. But I'm not, an, I'm not under, you know, the 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 belief that we're going to be able to convince everybody just with our words and stuff like that. Look, John the Baptist could not convince everybody. Jesus sure. could not convince everybody. All right. This is, this is the idea of a wicked and perverse generation. They resist the call to repentance, right, from what the Lord is calling for. And a huge reason that is because they become deceived, right? Like when we're looking at Jeremiah, Jeremiah was telling Israel, hey, we have to repent over idolatry or God is going to exile us, right? And Jeremiah got really, really political, right? He was like, Babylon, we need to surrender to Babylon, You have to understand that was the biggest political issue in Jeremiah's day, right? We need to surrender to Babylon. Babylon is God's chosen servant to bring judgment on us. And he's preaching this, but what's happening? The nation is hearing from all the other voices in the nation. And all the other prophets are saying, no, 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 we are the beloved of Yahweh. He loves us. He would never let us fall to Babylon, right? He's calling us to fight against them, resist them, right? Because we, he loves us and we're the apple of his eye, right? And Jeremiah sure. is saying, no, he's telling us to repent. And if we don't repent, he's going to give us over to the Babylonians. And this is the same situation that we have in America today. We have so many voices saying different things. That it's very difficult to discern the voice of God in terms of what he's actually saying to the nation right now. Yeah. And just to be
0: clear, I'm not I you know I, I want to say that I'm not calling Tim Keller or David Platt Marxists, or that they are advocating for uh, ungodly uh policies or anything like that. Uh, they absolutely abhor uh abortion um and, and and all those other things. Right. But I guess what I'm saying is is that they are saying that you have liberty in conscience to vote for a party that propagates these things that advances death celebrates death socialism and all these other things i'm just confused as to why you have these heroes of the faith not right. seeing not seeing that and i mean they probably see it but why are they saying to other christians it's okay to vote for that
1: yeah
0: right or, or vote for that party yeah because and the there's, argument and is, there's is a that lot.
1: yeah yeah there's a lot yeah right like yeah. john piper John yeah. Piper was hinting at that very strongly, right? That it's okay to mm-hmm. vote Democrat. Um, I think there's a lot. I think there's mass deception on this issue. Like these are men of God mm. that are great men of God overall, okay? But yeah, I think there's a lot of deception on this stuff right now.
0: Can you give us any examples in the New Testament where you, you have an apostle that were deceived about an idea or something like that? And How, did, how do we approach something like this?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, look, when you when you read the writings of Paul, you have to understand uh, most of his letters were written at least partly to refute some type of false teaching mm-hmm. that had started to gain real ground in these churches. All right, and it runs the gamut. In some letters, he's just saying, "Hey, you're doing a good job." Right. When he writes to the Philippians, for the most part, he's like, y- "You guys are doing a good job." Right. He's giving them relatively minor corrections. But then, he when he writes to the Galatians. He's like, you crazy Galatians, right? Who has bewitched you, right? I can't believe that you're turning away from this gospel that I preach to you. Even if an angel appears to you and preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed, right? And he's so mad. You could just feel the anger where he's like, I can't believe that you have believed these, these lies, right? And it runs the gamut right? Different churches are at different places, even in Paul's day. And you have to understand, it's believers that were teaching these false doctrines, all right? Mm-hmm. It was believers that were teaching them. And it runs a gamut. Some of them, he's going to call them straight up false teachers, and he's going to let them be accursed, right? And others, he's going to say, hey, you know, they just need to be corrected. This is wrong, right? But in all of these cases, it's believers doing the false teaching. So we're dealing with the same stuff that we've always been dealing with in the church, all right? Yeah. Where there's... Always going to be aspects of false teaching that are that abound, and that's part of the difficulty here, where we're drawing those lines about what teaching brings someone to the level of being labeled as a false teacher and a heretic, and defellowshipping from that person, right? And that's an important line for the church to understand, I think. And you know, I draw that line in a couple different places. If you if you differ on major doctrine, things like. There's only one way, you know, to to heaven through Jesus, right? Things like Jesus was not fully human or fully God. Some of these major doctrines, right? If you differ on some of those major doctrines. But also, I think the one key way that, you know, I practice this is if you have a teacher in the church who is teaching that you can practice sin and still be saved, I think that that is the line where Scripture says that person is a false teacher. I'm talking right now about 2 Peter 2, the book of Jude, Is this 2 Peter 2 or 1 Peter 2? I think it's 2 Peter 2, right? It's going to be about false teachers, and it's going to be talking about how they deceive believers, teaching them that they can sin, they can practice sin. That's why I always make a distinction between stumbling in sin and practicing sin, right? I think the scriptures make that distinction, that we all stumble in sin at times, Right, and we repent and we try and live holy, right? But we might stumble in again and we repent. And I think for believers in that position, there's mercy and there's grace. This is one of the great things about the blood of Jesus, but that's different from practicing sin. Where I'm not repentant over this sin. I'm practicing mm-hmm. it. And that's you know, when we're when we're looking at things like abortion, like homosexuality, these are sins that are labeled as good things by our culture. And yeah. so I just warn people that if you're if you're Practicing these sins, Scripture is very clear. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, do not be deceived, right? Meaning, don't be deceived by those who claim to be believers and yet practice these sins because mm-hmm. it's for these sins that God's wrath is coming, right? He talks about that in Ephesians. So don't be partakers with those who practice sins and yet claim to be believers. And unfortunately, that's a lot of pastors these days who are teaching this type of thing because yeah. they're trying to be loving, right? They're trying to be gracious. But this is exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5. There, you know, in 1 Corinthians 5, the church in Corinth is proud that they're being merciful to this man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And he's like, you're proud that you're being merciful, but you should have you kicked him out. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? I have already passed judgment on this man. I've handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that he might be saved. Why? Because we need to shock him so he realizes how evil what he's doing is so that he repents. And if if you kick him out and you show him, hey... This is how serious this is. You're not allowed to fellowship with us anymore. Then he might wake up and he might be like, "Oh my gosh, this is really wrong," and he might repent, and then he can be saved. That's the that's the idea in the heart here. Um, but look, there's mass confusion on this stuff in the church.
0: Yeah. So let me let me ask you this, Dennis. You you
1: said earlier that
0: if a Christian votes for a Democrat, they are practicing sin.
1: I'd say I, I, or no, I'm
0: sorry not practicing they're committing that it's sinful to vote for I think it can be,
1: so I need that, to be, okay. I, you know I need to be clear here because I, I don't think it's innately inherently sinful to vote Democrat, right yeah, but the idea here is this, right he who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it sins right the, mm-hmm. there There's a sense in which God will convict us or tell us, hey don't do this right and but you ration you rationalize it and you go you know what no I, I'm not I don't think that was God whatever and you and you vote right and I think that's sin for that person right I think there are other people that have not had that revelation they're truly deceived in this area right mm, okay and I think they can vote for Democrats in, you know without feeling like they're really violating their conscience and for that person I wouldn't necessarily say it's sin it can be sin um, I think it's definitely unwise but you know i I'm, I'm, I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt for people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, what about for critical race theory? I mean, there's a lot of Christians that believe in this and I think it's, it's an evil doctrine and it even makes one a racist because what it does is that, uh, if you're a white person, if you're white, then they immediately think that you're an oppressor. Right. Right. That's, that's racism. Right. So how should we approach something like that? Do you know what, what should pastors do, uh,
1: yeah, I think, I think pastors should be speaking forcefully against mm-hmm. this stuff, right? And I'm really appreciative that there are lots of mm. pastors that are speaking forcefully against this stuff, you know? For whatever reason, it doesn't seem to be the most famous pastors in the nation, right? I don't know yeah. why that is, but lots of pastors are speaking out against this stuff. You know, the presidents, the six presidents of the Southern Baptist um, seminaries all condemned critical race theory, right? So I appreciate that there are strong voices speaking passionately against these things, um, that's exactly what I think the church needs to do. And, look, I, the only thing is I just think it's really late. Like, man, this stuff is being taught in universities for decades at this point. And it's yeah. only recently that the church is— being taught Viola now. Yeah, it's only recently yeah. that the church has really started to engage this seriously with the attention that it deserves. So, look, better late than never. It is late, in my opinion, <laughs> right. right? But I'm glad we're starting to really— Um, combat this thing now.
0: Got it. Well, just to to sum it up for us, Dennis, I know we talked about a lot today. Just to sum it up, just give us quickly again those reasons why a Christian should not vote Democrat.
1: Yes. Look, I'm I'm just going to make it as simple as possible. I think there's two main reasons. Okay? Yeah. Number one is the abortion issue. All right, do not be deceived. If you're voting Democrat, you are supporting abortion. Okay? The Democrats are openly trying to protect Roe versus Wade, a constitutional right to an abortion for every American. That means we cannot abolish abortion in America without overturning Roe versus Wade, all right? And we can't do that as long as Christians are voting Democrat, okay? And number 2, they're funding abortion, right? With our taxpayer dollars. They're protecting organizations like Planned Parenthood. All of these organizations that commit abortion, they're openly championing them okay the whole ideology that abortion is a woman's right or woman's house that's all being championed by the Democratic Party so the idea that you can vote for them and not be supporting abortion is not true okay so that's number one all right number two is you're despising the wisdom passed down by our founding fathers all right and this is a real thing about inheritance Like, wisdom has to be passed down through the generations. This is what God told the Israelites, right? In Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, all these places, right? Like, tell your kids about what I did, right? Pass down the wisdom, right? And it's the same thing when it comes to liberty, the, the American value for liberty, I believe, was birthed from the heart of God, all right? The first great awakening, we have guys like George Whitfield preaching this message that all men are created equal. He told coal miners in England that even though you're, you're the poorest of, of Englishmen, if you're in Christ, then you're greater than the king of England, right? And this message was so compelling in the first great awakening, right, that it It spawned this desire of a new type of government that was by Mm. the people, for the people. The First Great Awakening was really the movement that set off the American Revolution, which set the standard for constitutional republics, and it overturned feudalism all over the world. And we are beneficiaries of that today. All right. The whole idea of limited government, all of the safeguards that our founding fathers gave us, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, all of these are predicated on a Christian worldview. And the Declaration of Independence has said that these rights are from our Creator. Right? We've been given these rights from our Creator. Our rights are not from government, they're from God, and the government shall not infringe upon these God-given rights. This whole paradigm was wisdom passed down by our founding fathers. And when we support socialism, when we make the argument that government is the only means by which we can truly help the poor, or the only means by which we can have an equitable society in these types of things, then we betray the wisdom of our founding fathers. And I would simply say this, that it is our job as Americans, speaking as Americans here, But I believe it was because of a God movement, a revival that God did in America that has become a blessing not just to our nations but to many other nations of the world. But it's our job as believers in America to esteem this wisdom, to understand why they implemented these things, and to resist all of these Marxist forces that are trying to demonize our founding fathers and say that they were just evil white supremacists, they were evil slaveholders, as though that they were the, the originators of slavery or the only ones that practiced slavery. I always say this, but look, the true story of slavery is how the West, Western powers, like America and England in particular, ended slavery all around the world. We should be giving our forefathers great credit for being brave enough to stand up to a worldwide system of slavery, and they ended it by their blood in the Civil War. And instead, mm-hmm. our generation turns around and vilifies them and demonizes them, and it is such, it is such a dishonor and a betrayal of our national heritage, things that we should be proud of in our nation's history. But this is the Marxist agenda. It's to tear down society by its foundations by causing you to despise, right, the the previous generations and to think that you're so much wiser than they are. And it is the height of foolishness and nations that fall into this, that that believe this this demonic, in my opinion, ideology. They're given over to their folly, and it's brought incredible devastation and poverty in every nation that has embraced Marx's theories and Marx's principles. And if you don't see Marxism in this stuff, I have to say, you're, you're purposefully blinding yourself. They're not hiding the ball here, okay? Mm-hmm. The leaders of BLM are openly Marxist, all right? They're not, they're not trying to hide it. They're saying we're trained Marxists. All right. Antifa people are Marxists. All right. This stuff is Marxist. And I just lovingly say this. If you're calling it a boogeyman, what then what do you think of all the hundreds of millions of people that believed communism in the past generation, that believed the lies of Marx and that came under all of this devastation and poverty? Were they just idiots? And I just lovingly say this no it it's a compelling ideology there's a reason why they fell for this stuff it's the same reason why our generation today is falling for the same thing i it how can the most privileged generation in history be convinced that it is among the most oppressed it is insanity but it is the nature of marxism it's always trying to convince people that you are oppressed yeah yeah
0: well said dennis Thank you so much for unpacking all of this. I know this is a uh, extremely controversial issue in this time, and so uh, I do hope that we we have some guests that would join our podcast. And you know, we we hope that we're not creating a straw man here. Um, So if there's anything here that we said that was not fair to uh, the liberal side, we invite you to come to our podcast. We'd love to talk to you and unpack a lot of these things. but, yeah, um, just to be clear, Dennis, you're saying Marxism is real? Yeah. <laughs> it's very real. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Now, I really appreciate you taking the time to impact all this, man, and uh, I look forward to our, our next conversation. For Thank sure, you, man. brother.